If you're looking for a hunting and fishing podcast that celebrates wild food ingredients and how to acquire them, check out the Food Afield podcast. We take you into the field with us while we adventure for food in the backcountry. The focus is on traditional bow hunting and fly fishing, but we explore all of the ways to fill your freezer. You can listen to the Food Afield podcast on Spotify and Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. Curtis, I think it was uh, episode four. In fact, I know it was Wild Four, uh, episode four, um, that we went to the University of Saskatchewan and met with Dr. Ryan Brook and did the podcast on invasive wild pigs in Canada. It was like a real... <laughs> right, on, right on cue. And we have that invasive wild pig here on the show today. <laughs> the same Boris. one that Dr. Ryan Brook has been chasing his whole academic career trying to, trying to get. Um, that sound effect was brought to you by Dr. Lee Flutt from Burnaby, British Columbia. Yeah, um, so we were crammed in um, Ryan's little office in the summertime. It was it was hot, and we just kind of engaged in this shock and awe type um, podcast about invasive wild pigs in Canada. Uh, their spread, uh, his research on them. I think he kind of coined them if you sat down with a team of people and designed the worst possible alien species of wildlife that you could introduce into an ecosystem. He said you would end up creating the wild pig, um, especially the ones that he talks about being the worst, which are the European or Eurasian wild boars that have crossed with domestics. Um, so the hybrids are bigger and more aggressive and they got an extra rib and all this kinds of stuff that uh, that Ryan talked about and um, so unfortunately apparently he's stuck in a snowbank somewhere uh, in Saskatchewan which is weird at this time of the year uh, to be stuck in a snowbank in Saskatchewan <laughs> so we're gonna miss him but uh, we do have someone that'll that'll fill in as best as possible and uh, we're going to pick this conversation up on invasive ball pigs. I'll introduce everybody uh, here, but um, in a moment. So, hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. This is the first episode of 2023, because this will be released on January 1st. We're recording this pre-Christmas, but anyways, Happy New Year to our listeners. This podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Do yourself a favor this brand new year. And if you're in Cranbrook, pop down, see the folks at Alpine Toyota. Tell them thanks for supporting the guys at the Hunter Conservationist, helping us bring you listeners, fantastic conversations. And now on the regular, very loud pig squeals. <laughs> Watch for the new Hunter Conservationist yeah. ringtone series. Yeah. Our first one will be. Yeah. So, as always, we're very grateful for the folks down at Alpine Toyota continuing to support us. So, thank you, Alpine. Yeah. Thank, 
Thank you, Alpine. So joining us on the show today, uh, Mackenzie Clark, welcome. Thank you guys for having me today. So Mackenzie, you're a biologist with the Okanagan Nation Alliance in Kelowna, British Columbia. Yeah, so I'm a Tamik, which means all living creatures or wildlife biologist with the Okanagan Nation Alliance right now. Oh, very nice. Very nice. Yeah. And you did your master's work under Dr. Brooke at the University of um, Saskatchewan or across the hall from him I in a completely different topic and you just had to listen to him rant and rave? <laughs> yeah, no, I did my undergrad at University of Saskatchewan and then started working with him throughout my undergrad for a couple of years. And then once I was done, I worked for him for another couple of years. I got kind of hooked on the wild pig research and kind of continued with it and then ended up doing my master's here in Kelowna. And so Ryan and I have kind of stayed connected throughout, kind of seeing if uh, we can get some sort of wild pig research going in BC as well. So we kind of stayed connected on all the wild pigs goings on. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Now, he said you have a close encounter story <laughs> with a wild pig. So you can do just like Lee did there and just yeah. interject that story into the middle of the conversation at the <laughs> most inappropriate time. Okay, sounds good. I'll make sure <laughs> next time when we need some like shock and all, I'll make sure yeah, I interject that. <laughs> oh, that's nothing. By the way, there was this time. By the way. You want to see the scar uh, though. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, yeah, I'll have to show you. <laughs> also joining us is uh, Matt Besco, uh, Director of Wildlife and Licensing for the province of Alberta. Welcome back, Matt. It's great to be here as, as always, Mark. Gotta love it. Lots of fun. Looking forward to it. And Dr. Lee Foote, retired professor from the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Welcome back, Lee. Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm here largely to keep the ropes on Matt so he didn't get out of control. <laughs> okay, and, and to squeal. Yes, squeal. <laughs> also joining us is uh, Frederick Hanner. Uh, welcome, Frederick. First time on our show. Much appreciated, given that it's late at night for you over in the UK. Yeah, absolutely love it. No, super excited to uh, to share what we do over here and, and see how it could connect to what you guys have there, the problems you encounter, and where you want to go with it. So I'm, I'm actually, on the one side, super excited to share what we do, but I'm also really, really excited to learn how, how you guys deal with something that I think can be an invasive species, a pest, but on the other hand, can also be super exciting hunting and an opportunity for all you sportsmen out no, there. No, absolutely. Appreciate, uh, appreciate you joining us. So, Frederick, you are the CEO of the Blazer Group UK group. and I am indeed. So, uh, really, really living oh, absolutely in any form possible. And uh, very, very lucky to, to be able to make the, the hobby, my, my profession and, and my job in the end. So I'm really, really grateful no, for that. No, I think we're all jealous of that. Uh, Frederick, you're also a team member of the Wild Boar Fever TV show that airs on My Outdoor TV. Absolutely. Yeah, that's how I actually got through to, to working in the industry and everything. Really a, a dream come true um, as, a, as a kid or as a, as a young Young boy, I, I got one of these typical spam emails, you know, you get, you, you're sitting in your office and there comes this email, do you want to be the next star of Wild Boar Fever? And I was like, well, I've got 10 minutes, so I better fill that form out. 
and three months later they they tell you you're one of of 20 competitors who have to be in Sweden next week for a shooting competition and if you win the competition you're you're on wild boar fever so I was like well hmm should I go to my best friend's driven boar shoot next Saturday or should I fly out to Sweden and I was like come on I'll chance it I'll, I'll go to Sweden and uh, uh, very very luckily I always say it I'll never shoot as well again as I did that weekend and, and won the competition and, and that's how I got a wild boar fever so um, absolutely love it and very fortunate also to um grow up in this time where I say driven boar shooting all over Europe was professionalized and when driven boar shooting kind of is or was on its peak I think we're a bit over the peak well I'm, I'm sure we'll go in that, into that a, a bit later but when I was 18, 19, 20 years old I mean that those were the big years those were the years where we where we had masses and masses and masses of wild boar all, all throughout Europe where we had massive issues but also amazing hunts and amazing fun. You know, when we had tableaus in the evening in, in my little own area of 56 wild boar or something, it's it's dreams, dreams wow. come true. Um, Matt and I were texting the other day, and, and I was saying, like, you guys on Wild Boar Fever are such amazing shots. Um, I, I said... I can't understand why you guys get like sponsorship from the ammunition companies or someone like me that would go through 20 or 30 more rounds to get a pig would be a much better candidate. Like, cause the interest of the ammunition company is not like the best shooters that use the least amount. I mean, I probably yeah, but we get sponsored, so you buy low. Oh, that's <laughs> what it is. Oh, we're, we're paying for it. Mark, there's another trick there. You know, I remember back in, in 2019 when Matt actually hit a duck and we got it on film. And uh, when it actually they don't have to show every time. They only show the ones where they hit. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Oh, so there is, there is some trickery in TV. Okay. Okay. No, that makes, that makes me feel better. Good um, to know. No, this, this is an awesome group of people for this conversation. So, Mackenzie, would you like to mm -hmm. kind of impart your understanding of where we're at in Canada now with the invasive wild pig issue? Uh, you've been involved in, in research, collaborate with Dr. Book. Um, kind of where are things at? What would Brian say if he was here? And you can swear. Um, <laughs> okay, good to know. I think it does kind of depend, you know, per province, per territory. Um, you know, they're all kind of different. I know um, places like Ontario did just put on a ban, a total ban of any wild boar hunting there just to kind of, you know, just to use targeted um, methods of trying to remove them without kind of the added uh, other aspect of sport hunters coming in, you know, kind of spreading them around. And so I know Ontario is trying to come up with some like management plans that way. And so they just passed that a couple months ago. So if you can't hunt there at all anymore. Um, Quebec, I'm not totally as sure exactly how they're doing. I know they do still have a wild boar problem. I'm not sure if what exactly their management plan is. I don't think that you know, they've gotten a big jump on bringing down their numbers. I know that there still definitely is a population there. Um, I With Manitoba, um, I know that they were doing some of like the uh, rural municipalities were getting um, 
some trap lines kind of going. So they're having a lot of those boar buster traps and they're hiring people to go out and kind of, you know, method methodically set out trap lines to try and get all the boars in an area. I know they were having some success with that, but I think kind of one of the limiting factors was too, is that a lot of the people that were doing that were like any of us, you know, where they have a full-time job as well. And so it was, there was a little bit of an issue with manpower. Um, I know I was talking to a guy last week, Will, who's from um, Spruce Woods area. And I know that they still have a big wild boar problem in like Southwestern Manitoba. And a lot of the issues with that is too, is like a lot of these areas where there is pigs, um, it's big contiguous areas of bush and that's like these parks. And so a lot of people get some of the pigs that kind of come out of the bush, but then there's still, I think a lot of these populations that are lingering around, lingering around in the bush that no one is able to get. Um, Saskatchewan, as far as I'm aware, I haven't talked with the provincial biologists, but I don't think there is any like, you know, real set out um, methodology to try and get rid of pigs at the moment. I know that there is still, a big population there and even just like talking to people that I know in the province like they are still seeing pigs like my boyfriend was working down in the southwestern part of uh, Saskatchewan and there was more than one occasion that he was driving to work in the mine really early in the morning and a pig would run across the road and so there's definitely still a big presence there. Um, far as I'm aware the territories don't have pigs at the moment. It, um, in British Columbia from the digging that I've been doing, um, there is some areas where pigs have been seen. So on the island, there's been some pig incidents um, over near Armstrong, BC. There's some farms and, you know, it's just kind of the, it's the classic story where like wherever there's a farm, you know, there is always kind of a little bit of a seepage of pigs out of these farms. And I know the regional bios are aware of it in BC. And so they go and when they need to, they're trying to remove all these pigs that they can. But that's you know the thing with pigs is we try and remove as many as we can see but i think there always is going to be some that kind of disperse on the landscape so i do definitely the pig problem is still very present i think kind of all throughout canada and i think probably matt or lee could speak a little bit better to what's going on in alberta right now so yeah i can that's i can take that my... up for sure because <laughs> so here so here in alberta yeah. the you know, the presence of wild pigs has been around for, you know, a number of years um, due to a variety of reasons, uh, largely through mm -hmm. establishment of, of uh, wild boar farms, escapees, hybridization. Uh, level of hybridization is much greater, um, I believe, in the Saskatchewan side than it is here in Alberta. Wild pig distribution in abundance yeah. here, for the most part, is relatively local. It occurs in a few regions, um, but it's not ubiquitous. The distribution itself is not throughout the province. It's localized in scope. We do have a wild boar program that's administered out of Alberta agriculture with assistance from us here in Fish and Wildlife. The intent is to remove entire sounders using active traps. Um, that program has been in place for a few years now. There's been, I believe, 58 sounders of pigs that have been removed. Uh, I think given the uh, level um, of manpower required, uh, it really is at this point a drop in the bucket. I think first and foremost, we require a fair mm -hmm. amount of of uh, public awareness and education with respect to wild pigs and uh, what they're doing. And as Mark mentioned earlier, 
we sort of have the perfect storm here in terms of um, hybrids between European wild boar and domestics here. You have the fecundity, uh, reproductive capacity of domestics combined with the resilience and vigor of European wild boar. You have reproduction occurring every seven months. Is that correct, Mackenzie? Somewhere around there. And litter size quite big, yeah. like between six and what, 14 piglets to that effect. Yeah, the, yeah, the average is like seven. Yeah, and yeah. The, the primary concerns from an ecological, yeah, the primary concerns from an ecological point of view that we have here is unlike Europe, wild boar are not native to North America, certainly not within post-glacial periods anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's 10 particular diseases that were identified um, that may be of concern. African swine fever is one of them. I know the Food Inspection Agency and uh, Health Canada is really concerned about that, especially with respect to the risk to uh, the domestic pork industry. We also have, they also carry two types of brucella, one of which is um, quite a risk, um, quite a risk to domestic cattle as well. Beyond that, the depredation concerns, the crop losses, and the disease factors, we do have quite an ecological concern. Um, that coupled with competition with some other species, there certainly is a concern. At the same time, we have a growing mm -hmm. population of hunters that want to have them, that want to maintain them on the landscape in order to maintain that recreational experience. The problem that we have here as opposed to Europe is that uh, hunting them disperses them. So if you're not killing an entire sounder of pigs, then the ones that uh, are not killed and shot at, they become educated very quickly. They tend to disperse and they also tend to be quite nocturnal. Unlike Europe, we can't hunt um, at night here because of our firearms regulations and you get this dispersal of wild pigs. So the question remains is, do we live with them or do we eradicate them or do we manage them? And that's, I think, the crux of today's discussion. Yeah, no, no, it, it definitely is the crux of the, of the conversation. I, I remember a, Dr. Brooke talking about that we were maybe about a year, year and a half ago, he was estimating that we might be on on the edge of the invasive wild pigs in Canada covering about 2 million square kilometers, you know, of the country with the greatest populations being in the central prairie provinces kind of spreading east and east and west. I, I don't know if mm -hmm. anybody else or Mackenzie, if you remember, if that's kind of about, about the, the, the footprint of them in the country. Yeah, I think roughly it's something like that. And it definitely is is concentrated around the prairie provinces right now for sure mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and it is um also just yeah it's concentrated around anywhere where there originally was those wild boar farms it's pretty much um his previous phd student ruth kind of went around and uh, mapped out where all the farms were and yeah it's pretty much you could overlay like if there's sightings of boar there was a farm you know in the middle of it so it's kind of just concentrated around where people were farming them but mostly around the prairies yeah yeah okay yeah frederick across europe were there places where the wild boars were not welcomed or not native in in the habitats or were they 
sort of at home across Europe and their population boomed. What, give us a snapshot of the situation with them there. So I'd, I'd say in the lowlands, there they are everywhere, and and they always have been everywhere. So on any like anything below a thousand meters in altitude, always had wild boar. It's absolutely normal. Of course, they they concentrate around farms, especially in the summer months. Uh, I would say when when the crops are standing, there's always wild boar close to the farms or in the farms. In the winter, they more or less pull into the beech woods, into the oak woods, just where there's beech moss, where there's oak moss, um, where there traditionally hasn't been wild boar is up in the in the alpine regions. Uh, in, in the high regions, in, in your chamois areas, in your, in your high red deer grounds, your ski resorts, so to say, we have some, some caper kelly there, we have some black grouse up there, ground nesting birds um, with very high protection status, and those are the areas we don't really want the wild boar at, um, because anything ground nesting, I mean, try to establish pheasants, try to establish hares in any numbers or something, if you have a, a large amount of wild boar, it's, it's not going to happen. You, you can control your foxes, you can control your badgers, you can control your martens, you can control everything. As long as there's boar there, anything ground nesting doesn't have a chance. Wow. Wow. Okay, no, that's a good um, snapshot of kind of the, the state of them. Does anybody else have anything in the way of, like, say, Canada specifically, where, where we're at right now? Uh, Lee, go, go ahead. You know, I, I hate to admit this. I'm going to probably have to change my opinion in the face of accumulating evidence. I was of the opinion that these animals during severe, severe winters, like as a rooting animal in, in a fairly uh, low diversity environment like Alberta, if we had 50 centimeters of snow and a week of minus 35, I didn't think they could survive or I think they'd be driven into areas where they were very open and vulnerable. But I think I'm going to have to back off that. I think I might be just flat out wrong. If they live in Siberia... Uh, Russian wild, yeah. maybe can handle anything the weather here can throw at them, even especially with, with climate change and there's extended periods of minus 30 just not happening like they used to. They they really might be here to stay. If that's the case, and if Ryan Brooks and, and uh, Mackenzie convince me that they are here to stay at some level, there is a question of, is it a constant call and control, which is Matt's bailiwick in some ways, or do we try to make the best of it and incorporate them into a hunting regime uh it seems fairly inevitable some jurisdictions will eventually embrace them as a, a valued game animal and manage them uh as a way of suppression but also as a way of, of maximizing hunter opportunity and um i think I'm, the pragmatist to me says i'll probably end up leaning that way eventually if we can't get rid of them let's have as much fun as we can with them <laughs> Well, there's definitely, and Matt can probably attest to it, I think there are hunters from every corner of Canada, uh, and I've heard this, it's like, yes, like, why not make them a managed game species? Uh, you know, especially when there's regions of the country where there's, you know, moose populations are down, or caribou populations are down, or are fully protected um, I've always sort of had the saying, hunters want something to hunt. Um, and I think that was, Mackenzie, you probably know a bit about this. There was like, you know, mm -hmm. controversy in Ontario when the provincial policy came out of not hunting them, not allowing any hunting on them so that they can 
truly try to manage them and the problem they have as an invasive species without interjecting hunters into the scene and doing what the other guys have said about kind of like pushing them farther and farther out so um, yeah and i guess like that just you know kind of probably circles back to determining like what do you want like do you want eradication or do you want to just keep their numbers kind of lower down because so ontario definitely chose to try and eradicate them from the landscape and so that's why they would have closed their population they probably have low enough numbers right now that they still feel like that's a possibility and so they just you know they probably know where they are roughly and they just don't want them spread across the landscape and so i i bet you that they're trying to still wipe them off and get rid of them totally I, whereas I, like i guess each province is going to determine what they want to do so sorry about, go ahead. my my sorry Mackenzie. so my question to frederick is okay. so so here here in alberta we're looking at eradication right now as being our primary objective because of the local distribution and we're still in relatively speaking the infancy in terms of wild boar distribution and in terms of mating uh, maintaining native biodiversity maintaining the health and welfare of our natural game species that are here is looking to you and your experience in europe is and specifically maybe looking at uh, things like African swine fever is how effective is hunting as a density dependent regulating factor and can you manage wild boar via hunting and if you can at what scale and intensity do you need to do that yeah um i would say absolutely you can and if if you really want to lower numbers or eradicate them um shoot the big females i mean that's that's always your your easiest solution um two things that i think are a massive contributor to getting numbers down number one large area driven hunts um drive them with a lot of guns you need a lot of people you need a lot of good shots you need a lot of beaters you need a lot of dog handlers drive the boar and then what i think is even more effective especially taking these big old females out is um, night hunting with thermal imaging. I mean, that's actually the the downside, I would say, of European-driven boar shooting at the moment. Large parts of Europe have, Europe have now legalized thermal imaging scopes, thermal imaging pre-mounts on your normal scopes, all of that. And it, it, the most incapable hunter is now capable of killing wild boar at night um, because it's, it's that easy. It's like shooting cartoon animals on a thermal device uh, you, you, you see them, you, if, if you understand wind, you, you get within 20 yards of them and you shoot them. I mean, it's, it's really not difficult anymore. But those two things, I think, if you want to eradicate, you need to legalize night hunting with thermal and you need to try them. Hmm. Oh, those are, uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. I know, you know, we've got issues in this country, like in Manitoba, about um, night hunting, and there's some court cases and stuff going going on uh, in that province about that. So, um, that's, night hunting, yeah, yeah. There is like one thing we had looked at doing before um, was there's thermal imaging drones that could be used in the day or the night, and so we were looking at getting a thermal imaging drone and. And, you know, finding a population, let's say that's in a park, that's kind of an island and then trying to work. Yeah. With getting a bunch of hunters 
some dogs, you know, go into that population and remove as many pigs as you can. And then come in with the drone, find all the rest, go in again, you know, keep doing it. And that was kind of a proposal Ryan and I talked about, but, you know, we haven't progressed anywhere with that. But that's also something to keep in mind. It's like the thermal imaging drones can be used during the day, which is kind of nice because I don't, I don't know if I can see Canada allowing night hunting. So <laughs> it'd be nice to, yeah, I think that's just, it's a hard battle. I yeah, think, but can as long as you don't use a firearm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You go wrestle it maybe. <laughs> Um, no, but I think I mean if you if if you don't legalize night hunting and you want to eradicate wild boar, good luck. I I, yeah. I I I wouldn't say in knowing what I know from Europe, knowing the areas I've hunted in Europe, if you weren't allowed to shoot at night with thermal, I don't think you could eradicate them. Well, I have this notion that, that Ontario is going to learn. It might take them a decade. Learn that they're spending millions on this program. Mm -hmm. They can take it down to the last five percent or four percent or three percent of the boars. But it, it never stops. And then they, they bounce back as soon as they release the pressure on them. That's just the biological uh, phenomenon that seems to happen. And at some point, if they throw in the towel like Saskatchewan seems to have done, then maybe they'll come back saying, well, hunting is, is a possibility. And there's also the possibility of summertime trapping, wintertime shooting. So you, you, you parse these into different times of the year. Or you have a one-week intensive boar hunt in the middle of winter or after the season, the big game season. And then you go back to, to uh, summertime trapping. I, I think one, Those are good ideas. yeah, I think one, one element that really uh, um, needs to be considered is the development of a hunting culture towards a new species. So we're in, in Canada, we don't drive animals for shooting. It's just not, not what we do. We'll, we'll push deer, you know, we'll push bush and we'll take one deer, you know, three guys will push a small piece and we'll out, we'll squirt a deer and we're shooting. Mm -hmm. um, but the culture of using beaters, using dogs uh, in a large organized fashion over large tracts of, of habitat in order to do that isn't part of the hunting culture that we have now. And I think part of the problem with respect to dispersal or is uh, hunters here want to hunt wild boar like they were deer, spot and stalk. You know, they see them crossing, you know, they're going to take a crack at them. They're going to remove one. They're not going to remove entire sounder and things are going to get worse. So it may take several generations and we may have to develop a culture by which, you know, we're using, we're using great dogs like my dog, for instance, like my wife brought her. I'm <laughs> kidding. But, but, and, and, and we're learning to hunt on stands and hunt on pegs and, and, uh, and, yeah. and be able to do that hunting at night. And that's what it may take in order to manage the species like this, the likes of which we just don't have the experience to deal with. Matt, I have a technical legal question for you. If, if an individual goes through a piece of bush with a rifle hunting and deer squirts out, other people can shoot at it. But if you go through there unarmed, clearly with the intent of beating and pushing uh, a boar out, wouldn't that constantly, wouldn't that be harassing wildlife and be fine? No, no, not, not in Alberta. Uh, wild boar in terms of the wildlife act uh, are, they're not yeah. considered wildlife. They're considered as pest species under the Agriculture Act. There's no legislation under the Wildlife Act that that influences 
the way that we manage or hunt or pursue or anything like that. Uh, they're Because they're classified as a pest under the Agriculture Act, the responsibility lies upon landowners that are legally required in order to take measures to eliminate them from their from their lands. So that's the obligation. It's a sort of a soft obligation because we really don't know how to do it properly. Uh, we do have that wild boar program in Alberta where we basically have to trap them out. We have to trap entire sounders out, have them habituated. It's a targeted removal. And that's where we're at right now. Lee, it sounds like you've been on the west coast of British Columbia too long because you kind of your first thing is like, how can I use the law to find a way to make this hunting thing illegal so it can be banned? <laughs> I, Mark, I've got such a, a criminal's mind. I, I love to think of laws and ways that I can break while I'm driving my truck. I don't, I don't do it. I don't act on it, but I sure like to think that way. Are, are you against trapping now, too? I'm the son of a judge. We might as well, <laughs> a bunch of we might as well get into it. It's, uh, it's just, Sorry. I, just I mean, think if, if Matt I'd... has a bunch of beaters run through and the boar runs out to shoot the boar, but then a 170-inch whitetail steps out, you can't shoot that because it was pushed out there against the law. No, you that can shoot maddening. it. You can shoot, you can uh, shoot that whitetail. We've, we've driven, we've driven whitetail out of bush. Just because you've done it doesn't make it legal. Doesn't make it legal. <laughs> it's completely <laughs> legal, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's deliberate wildlife harassment. Those BC folks don't do that. We're sensitive over here. Curtis, you, you can always mute that section yeah. <laughs> when we publish this. Uh, Frederick, this maybe, Matt Besco. Frederick, maybe just take a, a minute here. We'll just kind of step back a little bit. And for our listeners, um, mostly Canadians, describe to us how a typical driven boar hunt would unfold, like how it's organized, who's in charge, numbers of people, how you'd be set up, like, like just paint that whole, that whole picture for us. Okay. I'll, <clears throat> I'll run you through my typical day that I have at home, which is a very down to earth local shoot. Um, people involved, I will have on an average day, I'll have 50 to 55 guys with rifles out so they're on posts and i'll have about the same in dog handlers and beaters i have two teams of beaters um and dog handlers who walk towards each other so i'm beaten from two sides in the area and i'm trying to turn the poor to run in a circle as, as often as i possibly can to bring him in front of the guns my day starts around six o'clock in the morning i um put speed uh, restrictions on all the local roads that are um, coordinated with police and the authorities. Um, I get the three police cars out, make sure they know where they're going. They actually always um, very kindly now put a um, like a speed camera out to slow, really slow the traffic down. And that's not because I'm worried that a boar runs into a car. That is purely to protect our dogs and make sure the dogs aren't run over. Um, once all the signs are out, I go to the meeting place. I address all the hunters um, with, you know, safety brief with what they're allowed to shoot on the day, um, times, locations, all of that. Um, then the team of locals who bring the guns out have 40 minutes to put everyone on their post. And in these 40 minutes, I organize all the beaters and dog handlers. Um, make sure they know which team they're on, 
make sure they're out in time. And then after these 40 minutes, the beat starts. Um, my own one lasts three hours. That is very heavily size of ground dependent and, and topography, amount of wild boar, how big the thickets are and so on. After three hours, I ask all the hunters to pull their game to the road. Then I have a team of game collectors starting to drive um, every road in the woods. They collect all the animals, bring all the animals to the um, meeting point. At the meeting point, um, I have a team of five butchers. They clean all the animals, make sure they're fit for human consumption. Um, then we lay a tableau, so we lay all the animals out, horns, uh, out of respect to the animals, that's a very Germanic thing. Not everyone in Europe does it. The, the French do it. The Germanic countries do it. Um, and then that's more or less all done. And um, we definitely have a very social aspect in the evening as well. So after every driven boar shoot, there's a big, well, you could call it a, a shooting dinner, so to say, where all the dog handlers, all the beaters are invited by the hunters. Um, and we have a nice evening and a nice meal together. Wow. Frederick, how many? What's a, what's a good take for fifty guns in a morning of boar shooting? What's mm -hmm. a good a good harvest? Uh, it depends. I mean, like like I said before, in in the old days, I always said anything between thirty and fifty boar was good. Um, I was really happy with that. Um, the the my record, so to say, was was fifty six on in my area. This year, I was very very disappointed. We only shot twelve. And that is purely down to the legalization of thermal optics and all the areas around me making heavy use of that. I'm completely against it. I don't want to eradicate boar. I think they're the best thing ever, uh, really, for, for us um, hunting-wise. They are our biggest asset. Um, I'm very, very keen on them, so I, I don't want them eradicated. I actually make sure I have a good, healthy uh, population around but then again, you know, that's just objectives. I mean, it, it depends on what you want to do. If you if you want to protect Capercaillie in the Alpine regions, you don't want boar. If you're in an area that's very heavy on, on oak and beech forests and boar have always been there and you see them as your biggest asset, absolutely, you will support them. Good. Thank you. Wow. What about Jeez, in this part of the world you can't even get? five hunters to agree on yeah. one thing in a wildlife meeting room let alone how, how many people yeah yeah but, well, you know that's yeah. why we have like like our hunting areas are pretty small i would say in 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 comparison to so the the area that i rent off the ground owners is 500 hectares so that's what 1200 acres or something um yeah. and on the day there's one person in charge and that's me so like we have a saying or, or like the, the title is hunting leader in german directly translated and that guy is in charge and either you play by his rules or you go home you know it's it's not like it, it, you need somebody in charge if you have a an event or an organization like that you you can't have 50 people all having their opinion and then it all ends up in disagreeing or whatever there's on every hunt there's different rules but whoever is in charge makes these rules and and that's that's the end of the discussion really uh, because otherwise like you say you're never going to get anywhere lee, like, lee and i too many people shooting yeah lee, lee and i were in we were in poland a few years ago and we were, we were on a driven shoot and it was it was really eye opening for both Lee and I, who have hunted, you know, through you know, uh, mostly in Canada, but also in the states and Argentina and a few other places, uh, to be able to see that level of organization. But what really impressed us is the level of stewardship 
and the amount of respect and tradition that was involved in the process. Everything, as you suggested, Frederick, from being in there in the morning and having that briefing, safety briefing, and having everyone there, to hearing the horns that starts the hunt, to seeing the dogs and the beaters, to having that lunch, to laying out the tableau of game in the evening, and then having those dinners is a very different but very enriching hunting experience. And uh, and also dealing with the land areas as well. So in Poland, rather than having a few drives or two drives or one drive, we would have, how many did we have in, in a day? Usually seven or eight, Lee, when we were Five, there. Seven. Uh, but, and then we, yeah, we would drive from one area to the next, but it speaks to the, um, to the size of areas that we were hunting and managing. And here, so 1,200 acres, you know, 500 hectares, yeah. Yeah, we'd cover that in, you know, half an hour of hunting for, like Lee and I, we hunted pronghorn antelope in the south two or three years ago. And 1,200 acres is like glassing for 10 minutes and then we move on, right? So the scale and magnitude by which we exercise that hunting is very different. And that, that speaks to the cultural differences. And I think there's a lot to share and a lot to learn from both aspects. Frederick, Frederick said something very interesting a little while ago. He, he mentioned that there is a conflict between the, the night hunters and the, the driven boar shoots. And within the concept of specialization theory, where the, the crossbow hunters and the longbow hunters and the, and the compound hunters, they all fight with each other because they all want their niche or the inline muzzle loaders versus the flint lockers versus the center fire rifle hunters. They fight with each other. You know, it, it the, the free climber rock climbers versus the rope in harness climbers, they fight with each other. It, we, we really have to do something to not be at loggerheads because we have a much larger enemy and that is our oppositional force. I should say not enemy. And that is people that don't want any hunting at all that in the Canada that don't want guns, don't want uh, dogs, don't want hunting activities. And so I understand y'all are competing for a similar shared resource there, but to, to, to really institutionalize these them and us sort of things with, with the other hunting groups can be, can play right in the hands of the antis. And so uh, maybe that's, those are, that's could be a future concern, I guess. I would worry a little bit about that. Right. Right, kind of getting the the organized yeah. hunts being um, turned into a, a narrative that makes hunting not look good. You know, like one hundred hunters pursuing. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I mean, whatever uh, <laughs> 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 the piglet, yeah, piglet, yeah, they're big enough. <laughs> I have a rue. rue. So, rue. Fred, Frederick, I have a I have a question just to change horses slightly, and that's. In Poland and in Germany, African swine fever, how has that affected the management of wild boar and the threat to the domestic pork industry? And is it, and I know that there was a time in Poland where they brought the military in in order to uh, depopulate vast tracts of habitat uh, without, you know, with only partial success to be able to do something like that. And I know Germany has uh, African swine fever right now. What is the particular management concern around that? Uh, and contrast that with, you know, what you're dealing with, with respect to managing the sustainability of wild boar as a game species. 
Oh, oh Brig, you froze up there, Frederick. Oh. <laughs> hmm. Shoot. No, we'll probably we'll we'll get him back and yeah. Frozen Freddy. Back in. <laughs> that's, okay. that's okay. So yeah, and just shifting shifting a little bit here, um, just kind of like the hunting aspect of it. And Matt, I really like what you said about like developing a hunting culture that would be very different from Canadian hunting culture. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the African swine the reason this, why thermal um, imaging has been legalized throughout most of Europe. This way. Um, definitely, hunters, I mean, the, uh, you know, the, the objective yeah. is you're, you're to your increase stand, numbers, and, um, and that has been so. It, I mean, it came in from, from the East, Ukraine, Poland, it's what? Czech it's just fine. I've got, I've got to tell you that it has dimensions it, to a hunt. Came slowly that I hadn't really thought of this. The, in, the Germany, auditory aspect I think of hearing sounds. I, I looked at the tracker the yesterday. We're now at 44,000 cases. And the excitement in the of the hue and the cry and the black periods all and over. the various um, animals that seem to be moving and circling around. It's not like they're just blasting, running, like Bambi running from fire. It's much more like these things are sneaking ahead circling around, getting around the beaters, but they're just moving a little bit, enough to be seen. And it's it's uh it's just this echoing through these these oak oak cathedral forests with uh with red deer moving and and um, uh you know sometimes seeing seeing fallow deer and then boars and foxes and raccoon dogs and all sorts of things just moving around it's just really spectacular we even saw saw European woodcock flying through the woods you know bumped by the beaters it was really spectacular you just don't know what you're going to see. Lee killed a fox on opening morning on the first drive. And uh, having trapped foxes in Louisiana, you could tell he had this big shit-eating grin on his face. It was quite spectacular to see. And, uh, and what, what, okay, this is, this is really good. This is really good because every podcast I have to, I have to hack on Lee a little bit. Lee, Lee is scared of basically nothing except when the dogs caught these raccoon dogs, these Asian Asian raccoon dogs that are introduced, Lee couldn't he couldn't figure out in his head what was it? Was it a raccoon? Was it a dog? Was it some weird marsupial or anything? And it would be sitting in the back of the gamekeeper's truck, and Lee didn't want to touch it. He was like, "Oh my god, I can't look at this thing! It's scaring the crap out of me." It, it was out. spectacular. I loved it. Teratogenic. <laughs> it, it was. It was. Uh, had all these expectations in my head it was it was really kind of creepy it was like an alien it was like Gollum was back there on his belly <laughs> <laughs> matt matt what what are what are some of your thoughts about being a hunter in a driven hunt you know it was it wasn't just being a hunter though because it being polish and then being able to go back to the country where your parents are from and hearing all the stories of Jeek, you know, the wild boar and the wolves in the forest and the Vizent and all of these things, to me, it was it was culturally grounding to me. And to be able to experience this as a hunt as a hunter was novel, and it was very very exciting. It was fun. I have to say that I was moved to emotion. Um, because of the tradition and the hunting and the language and being able to, you know, go, go there and you made your, and you harvested an animal and having the gamekeeper, you know, you take off your cap, 
he takes off his cap and he extends his hand. He says, Darshbur, and then he says something or other. He could have said anything. He could have said, you're an asshole and, you know, so is your parents. You know, it wouldn't matter. I, I, almost, just, I almost just went nuts. And then he'd take, he'd take a piece of hazel or evergreen. He'd put it onto the animal itself. And he'd take a twig and he'd put it in the animal's mouth as the last bite. And then he, with the blood on the tips of the hazel or the spruce, he hands you this and you put it on the right side of your cap. It's like getting crowned. It just makes you feel so part of this rich tradition and culture. And you feel so incredibly, you know, part of something that's greater than yourself. And uh, I remember talking to one of the German hunters that was in our group. I said, what the hell did that guy say? You know, he said, well, just read the outside of the label of Jägermeister. That's exactly what it says there. You know, this is to honor, <laughs> you know, the the hunter, the animal and the creator who made it. And it was to me as a hunter, it enriched my hunting experience. It enriched my part of hunting understanding. And I absolutely loved it. The other thing that Lee and I really noticed is that the forest areas in Europe are highly managed and they're multiple use. So when I was in Germany, I uh, and I, we were hunting for roebuck in the spring, you'd see guys on bikes or, you know, going through and you just had to remember not to not to shoot, you know, in their direction and and in Poland it was mushroom pickers and everybody was enjoying the forest. It was it was really interesting. You know, there's there's at wow. least three of us on here that are now blouser shooters as well. Matt is a regional rep, and uh, through a very long and hairy story, I ended up getting gifted a beautiful thirty out six blouser. I'll tell you that story sometimes. Matt's the butt of that joke. I because I yet, because I ruined his I ruined his motorcycle. Okay, Let's leave it at that. While we were uh, I crashed we Poland, his motorcycle. And he paid me with a, with a nice rifle. Anyway. Good deal, that. It, I tried to go easy on yeah, you there, yeah. Besco. Um, we were hunting with yeah, a distinguished yeah. landed gentleman who had a, this beautiful, Matt, you'll know the model, this beautiful wood and, and engraved blouser rifle. And uh, he oh, crippled yeah. the boar and he walked in to finish it off. And this boar either circled around the dogs or charged him, whatever, knocked him down and hooked his rifle sling over the boar's neck, and the boar takes off through the woods with this $7,000 German-engraved blouser rifle. It was That's spectacular. True, is it? What's that? <laughs> yes. Seriously. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah, Seriously. yeah. this is, this is, this is I'm, and I'm not going to hesitate his name. This is Dr. Dr. Bernard Richter, and uh, we were in, <laughs> in, in Poland, and and Bernie, and calling him Bernie is is you know, when he prefer, prefers Bernard and, and to his staff, Dr. Richter, when Bernie, when, when, we don't when do Bernie was his, 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 you know, grade, I think grade nine or grade 10 wood in his R8 that was nicely engraved <laughs> and uh, his, his really high-end Zyscope was, you know, bouncing around the beech trees because it was hooked on a wild boar's oh. neck. It was spectacular. <laughs> So he, he really, he should be very proud of that story, but he was humiliated. I think he was irritated. If I had some scratches on my fancy rifle from a boar's tusk, I'd be bragging like an un, unsufferable bastard. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. Um, 
Frederick, um, so you were saying, um, I just want to dig into a little bit and learn a little bit about um, like herd management, um, you know, under different kind of regimes and, and what's going on. So you said, you know, um, and, I, and I think the idea of removing breeding females, whether you're talking about deer or waterfowl or, or whatever, um, that's your that's your reproductive capacity of a herd or a population and you target those and you know you can if you get enough of them you bring it down but what are what were some of the other like types of management regimes with wild boar herds uh, and I'm sure it would change from year to year as their populations give us some ideas of like the types of management regimes that you may be implementing at given years given different population dynamics give us a flavor of what's what's happening over here yeah i mean i i heard you guys speak about trapping um for example and trapping's absolutely illegal with us over here so it's it's very interesting for me to hear this um we we, we started discussions on trapping and and stuff now with, with african swine flu some states allowed it some countries allowed it um, success was very limited from what I've heard, and that was mainly due to um, the, our wild boar being too clever. I know it works extremely well down in, in the U.S. I, I see these video from Texas where they catch like 40 at a time or something. I don't think our wild, our real wild boar would, would, would do that. Um, so we kind of have our traditional spot and stalk or our upper, upper high seat. I mean, that's how, how we always shot ball when, when I was a kid. Um, that, that, that was your go-to method. You, you weren't necessarily overly worried about one or two too many because, like I say, the driven ball culture, winter is coming, the driven ball season is coming. So, hey, okay, if, if, if there's a couple more, you leave them. If the farmers start complaining about crop damage, um, then the German law is we as hunters or whoever owns the hunting right or rents the hunting right has to compensate the farmer for his damage. So I have to pay the farmers the, the crop damage every year. And my reasoning or my opinion on it is I'd rather spend a little more on crop damage and have a good driven boar shoot uh, rather than have a very low bag on, on the driven boar day. Um, but then again, that is a, a bit of a, a jiggle always, like how much money will you get from selling the meat? I, I don't know if you guys are allowed to sell wild meat. We, we definitely are in, in Europe. So um, that has an, an economic aspect as well. The, the venison is, is very, very much uh, sought after, especially in Germany. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say if, if you really want to become effective, the, the the two things again and again are going to be driven shoots with a lot of people um with learning how to do it i mean look we we learned and learned and learned we didn't always have these masses of wild boar in germany as well i remember the the first boar shoots that i was a beater at when i was 10 years old maybe um it, it was like hare hunting in the old days you know it was a, a, a square of wood there was hunters in a square and you just shot to the outside. Today, the the hunters are everywhere through the woods on the tracks that we, we, we push them much slower. And the big advantage of that is if you if you only do a small block of woodland at a time, once the boar leaves that bit of woodland, um, it's gone. 
and and it won't be shot at again. If if a sounder is out of the beat, a sounder is out of the beat. But if the beat is big enough that there's another two or three hunters having chances at the same sounder, you're multiplying your kill rate. You're multiplying your your chance at the shot as well. So I think large scale driven bore shoots, and then at night shooting them with a thermal if you want to be effective are the the two things to to really concentrate on. Of course. Your your spot and stock guys, they're, they're going to have their ten percent share of the overall bag or something. Yeah, your your muzzle loader guy might shoot one, your crossbow guy might shoot one if he's lucky. But those are not the types of hunting to really lower a population, in my opinion. Right. So what about what about taking young of the year? Um, is that something that's done in in management? You know, herd reduction type type hunts uh and that's got to be a lot harder when there's when they're smaller obviously yeah i mean we we have this thing we say 60 percent young of the year should be your overall bag if you're managing them um 30 percent um one year to two years and then 10 percent adults that's if you if you really go super sustainable if you want your old Tuskers uh, to be there and so on. That that's how we manage them. That's how I learned it when I was a, a kid. But that I think is over with African swine flu, and especially if you want a lower population. I mean, try to have a large chunk of your reproductive females uh, in there because they're the ones who are gonna gonna increase your numbers um, for sure. Yeah, but yeah. we do shoot. Um, I mean, I always say start shooting at around 15 kilos when they when they lose their stripes. That's that's kind of the the done thing, so to say. I will shoot a stripey boar in a cornfield or something if I really have bad bad crop damage. I, I will shoot them in the summer, one or two. But you know, the the sounders, the the females, and so on. If you shoot a a striped frischling, as we call them, so a one year old boar out of a sounder, they 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 don't like it at all, and they will stay away for the next couple of weeks. Oh, interesting. The 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 mama and the and the rest will stay away. Okay, interesting. Mackenzie, what what do you think of kind of where this conversation is going? Uh, and to sum it up, you know, which is why I wanted to have this conversation, is you know, I'm I'm posing the question to everybody: if we mm -hmm. have lost control of these things in the heart of Canada, let's say our, our prairie provinces, our ag producing zones, is driven hunts, building this culture that's Matt talking about in very controlled situations of trained hunters, it's organized, it's big. And I think something that becomes an important part of this to me is if these things are on our land, eating mm -hmm. our biomass and our crops, then to me, it's fair game that they should be up for human consumption. What do you think about that in your experience being involved in, in the wild mm -hmm. pig research in Canada? Is that like a over my dead body kind of thing? <laughs> or is it a, uh, it may have a place in certain circumstances and where would those be? Um, I think that definitely circles back again. And I feel like this is with a lot of wildlife management. It's like, what do we want? Are we trying to manage it? Or are we trying to eradicate it? And so if we are trying to eradicate it, I, yeah. And so I think if we are trying to eradicate it, I can see 
if we had a bunch of trained people going into an area, I can see that working. But the thing that we have a lot of trouble with and that I've seen in the past is there's tons and tons of private land in Canada. And so all it would take is, you know, one person saying, nope, you're not coming on my land. And okay, so we clear them from one area, but they're on Bobby's land over there. Okay, you know, we're kind of out of luck in that situation. So I think you know, everybody's kind of be going to be on the same page of what we want. And I know, like, from what Matt was saying earlier, there is like, definitely, you know, a culture about hunting. And I've experienced a lot when I was I'm working on the project, like, people would message us asking us, you know, where are the pigs? And, you know, I'm, I'm walking around, or I'm sitting in my truck, and I can't see pigs. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I don't see grizzly bears sitting in my truck either. You know, you got to kind of put in the hours, you know, people got to put in trail cameras, maybe baiting, like, there's a lot of effort that has to be put in. And I just, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe they're interested in hunting them just to, to get rid of them on the landscape. A lot of people would say, you know, if you tell us where they are, me and my buddies will go get rid of them. But unless you're willing to put in like full-time job effort to get rid of them in that area, it's just not really going to work. And so, yeah, I truly do think it circles back to what does a province want? Are we going to eradicate them or manage them? And so, that's I can see the feasibility in it, but I think everyone's got to be on the same page. And it seems like in Europe, everyone is a little bit more on the same page. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, yeah. Matt, your thoughts on what do we want to do with them? Um, like you know, you're saying like the possibility of eradication in Alberta is still, you know, um, there's some hope for it. But let's say. Yeah next year when there is no hope because there's like eight million in alberta like then what <laughs> yeah well as 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 a wildlife manager and as a biologist um knowing the potential risks that um hybrid wild boars would have to not only our agriculture industry but to um general biodiversity to potentially other game species, uh, other bird species, um, the environment, uh, potential for depredation on native crops or anything like that. Uh, uh, and given the current state and distribution, the primary goal for us, what we'd want, as Mackenzie would say, would be to eradicate them. And that's, I think, we value our own biodiversity. We, we don't have wild boar as a native species, that's our goal to do that. Uh, if, as you said, if it comes to a point by which we have wild boar on the landscape, uh, the, the idea of eliminating them is far too gone, then let's move to the next step. And that's when the hunter in me sort of peaks an in interest, but at the same time, it, they have to be managed you have to have the resources and the culture in order to be able to manage them that way. So that's, that's where I see myself in terms of uh, having an opinion on this. That being said, when I'm in Europe or anywhere else, I love hunting <laughs> wild boar. Love it. I have a couple hey. of thoughts. I would really like Frederick's response to. I've listed five things here that I think are part of the way that, that the European countries have embraced wild boars beneficially. 
and they're largely economical. The economics of the clubs and tradition that form up, people have a certain identity. The economics of the hunting tourism that happens is people bring their big American and Belgian and Spanish dollars into a place and leave money on the table there. Economics of the meat market that they've developed that we have not developed. Economics of crop insurance, crop damage. And some years when crop prices are low, the farmer may make a few extra coins on, on payments from the hunters. And then the economics to the local economics to the beaters and their dog handlers that probably, I don't know if you pay those guys in meat or dollars, but it's probably a little Sunday extra spending money. So they, they've actually, it sounds like you conformed this hunting tradition and system to make boars a benefit rather than a complete detriment. Absolutely. I mean, if, if we take it point by point, I'll, I'll start with the, with the dogs and then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll go point by point so I address everything. So the dog handlers, depends a bit where you are, um, what, what type of hunt you're on, um, if, if you get paid. Traditionally, the dog handlers would be invited for dinner and, and that would be their kind of payment for the day. None of us, I mean, I, I have a dog myself and stuff. I mean, I, I don't keep a dog to earn 50 quid on, on, on a day's meeting or something. I know this is a bit different in, um, in other countries. I know in Spain, they have huge packs of, of, of boar hounds. Some of these guys run and they run them all season. And that's more or less their, their full-time job. That's where they, where they earn their annual money from. So that's a bit dependent on, on where you are in Europe, I'd say. But in Germany, the, the traditional thing is, hey, you're invited for dinner. Hey, you're invited for a roebuck or something in the spring. Um, it's, a, it's a lot of give and take um, kind of there. Um, the establishment of the, the, the meat market, I think that's historic. I mean, I, I can't ever remember us having massive problems, especially in the urban areas, getting rid of the meat. I mean, my order list for venison, for wild boar meat, for sausages, for for any produce made out of wild boar is far longer than what I can actually supply um, every year. So people love it. Every boar gets trichinella tested back home. So we, we have to go through a course where to, to cut out the, the diaphragm and where to cut out the muscle meat to then give it to the state vet. And then they take, they're, they're very quick, uh, a day at max before we get the results. But in my living time, I've not heard of a trichinella case. So um, it's something that I think could happen, but never really does happen. Um, sorry, if you could help me now with the with the other points. To well, the, I was thinking about the, the overarching hunting tourism. We've looked at this with polar bears and a few other things. There's a lot of money that's pumped into an economy from visiting hunters, right? Absolutely. I mean, especially in the in the Eastern European countries, that is a, a huge chunk of tourism there. Um, I think the the Hungarians <clears throat> have that perfected um, that they're the, the the game animals are managed very very well. Also, in cooperation with the forestry department, um, in a lot of European countries, you know, also the the red deer, the roe deer are um, very heavily controlled at the moment, or even use uh, to prevent damage on on trees to to fight global warming and stuff that's the the forester side of things of course my hunting heart says hey we, we've always had trees we've always had deer so uh, let, let's not over regulate let's not kill the last red deer in, in poland so to say um but that is a, a huge thing normally the further east you go the the french have one region where they're very heavy in hunting tourism 
the Spanish have some privately owned places um, where, where you have uh, tourism. Germany, very, very little because we have a very, very high entry level of our hunting license. So it's very difficult to get the German hunting license. And there's only a few foreign licenses that qualify for you to get an uh, alien non-resident hunting license for 14 days. But uh, de definitely, yes, um, there is a huge market in the East of traveling hunters for driven bull shooting. And then the final one was the actual uh, abatement of, of crop damage, or in some cases, a supplementary income stream to, to farmers. When they don't make a good crop, they actually might get a little payment from you guys, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, that's always a, a big bargain bargaining thing happening when, when, when it comes to it. There is, of course, we have our average prices, and then we, we, we can measure how much wheat is is pushed down or has been eaten in an, in a field um one state in germany has something like a, a a collective insurance of all the hunting grounds so the um woodland hunting grounds actually pay into this pot um together with the field hunting grounds and all the um crop damage in the state is divided by all hunting ground owners, which I think is a great thing, actually, because that's very fair. Because, uh, I mean, I'm, I, I quite openly admit I'm, I'm liable to it as well. If you're a woodland hunting ground owner with a very high population, you, you, you make sure you have a high population for the driven shoots, and the neighbors around you who own the fields all summer long are, are very stressed, are hunting all night long to reduce their damage. So I think that's a very fair thing uh, to do to actually divide it between everyone. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Wow. Yeah, thanks, Lee, for um, making notes and being very studious mm -hmm. and bringing those forward. Those, those are, those are. I mean, those are really good points. Um, what? So let, let's just say, jump forward in the future, like something like this was happening in Canada. Do we actually have the culture to be able to go like, hey, Curtis, what are you doing on the weekend? Um, like, rather than doing that, wouldn't you like to grab your dog in a high-vis vest? Because like, I got this chance to go out and, <laughs> and go in the, on the platform, and I really need you to just walk through the bush. And, and like, I mean, gosh, is that something you know canadians would do would they collectively get together maybe if they all had their chances like does that happen frederick like do do you take turns um you're a hunter one day and a beater the next or is it just like completely separate jobs or the kids are the beaters and then when you become an adult you get to be a hunter and then you make your kids be the beaters <laughs> how does that whole dynamic work yeah it's we we have I'd say we have a bit of a divide. The, the younger guys are normally the ones in the bush beating or with the dogs. And then we have these crazy dog people. We have, we have guys that, that live for their dogs and, and that live for chasing boar with their dogs. And I, I have a lot of friends who would say, look, I, I wouldn't care if I never shot another boar. But if you took my, my dogs and my knife away from me and, and stopped me from chasing them with, with my dogs, they, uh, they, they would absolutely be in tears over it. They, they couldn't do it. Um, it's, it's a bit of what you prefer and, and where your speciality is. Um, I always say I, I love being in the beat as much as I love being 
been on a platform. Um, there's more dynamic in the beat. I'd say the, the action is, is, is fast and furious in the beat. So if you're, if you're with the dogs and stuff and, and you're running, maybe, you know, the dogs catch a boar or there's a wounded boar that you're tracking with the dogs and stuff. Those are, are really action-packed moments um, that are that I really, really, really do enjoy. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. I, I think that... So... I think that Canadians will catch on if there's an opportunity... If there's legislation and regulation around that, Canadian hunters will adapt to this within, you know, a few years. And I remember when, you know, bow hunting came into its own, that was a slower sort of dynamic. But once it took hold, it just took right off. And then, you know, the whole archery hunting and all of the culture around that came into play. And the same goes for, you know, angling and the walleye tournaments and all of that and all of the techniques is when people see an opportunity like this, uh, they quickly figure out a way to make it work. What I think will take more time are the antecedents to that. It's the, it's the culture, it's the tradition, it's the horns, it's the handing over the the uh, the last bite it's it's all of that and that's you know tied in European history I'm sure in Canada it, it will turn into something like here's your shooter of rye whiskey and you toss it back and they you know f and a you know like it could it could, it could just turn into that but but something like that will occur right yeah yeah maybe you let out a pig squeal so like Lee if Oh God! <laughs> yeah, that's definitely uh, uh, a good um, resume item for a, a beater. Is is that you can squeal like one and and uh, in in hog terms say you need to move forward, move in that direction. That's. <laughs> can, can I so ask if, if something? Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, can, can I ask you as one question? The, the, where you guys have the wild boys? That where there's black bear as well. In some areas, yeah. Yeah, yeah there is. It's, it's... Yeah, so like there is wild boar up in northern Saskatchewan and yeah, the areas in Alberta, I'm pretty sure as well. There's black bears. Well, if you yeah. guys ever need help organizing a combined boar and bear shoot, I'm, I'm, I'm uh... flying over. I mean, that seems the most amazing <laughs> thing ever. Jeez, oh, never, never thought of that about all the other things. It'd be like the all the animals here in Canada going to Noah's Ark. And, like, <laughs> it's a very that. interesting drive, though, yeah. to, pushing through grizzly and mountain lion country with small dogs trying to chase boars out of a thicket. You know, you don't know who's, yeah. the, who's the pursuer and who's the pursued in that situation. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. pretty sure Frederick said that you use retired folk for the beaters. Yeah. <laughs> Wiry. That'll, that'll be the uh, that'll be the new custom in Canada. <laughs> so, so if this were to happen in Canada, as let's just say a pilot project somewhere, probably in one of the Prairie Provinces. Um, two questions. One, Mackenzie, how mm-hmm. as a researcher, how would you set something like that up so that there is a before and after? some data collected to have some 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 evidence some some proof of what actually happened and then for everybody else 
how how would we go about organizing the hunt and would we bring someone like Frederick over here? Cause we've told him there's lots of black bears in this pilot project area. He's bringing his team over. Would we send people over and, and, and cross train and then come back and implement it here? Um, free for all how, so Mackenzie, I'll ask, I'll let you go first. Uh, how would you see that being a pilot project being set up that would have some science attached to it? Um, I guess like, are, are you trying to set this up to introduce this as a hunting culture or set it up to remove boar from an area? I guess. Well, let's, let's say, let's say, uh, like a boar reduction yeah. component to it. That would be like your focus to evaluate mm -hmm. this method of hunting in a pilot project for reduction. Yeah. What, what would you be looking for? Um, probably what i'd be looking for was like i was saying earlier like an island of you know an island of bush or something like that where they're in like a park or something like that i know ryan and i had looked at um it was riding mountain park before which is you know something that's just separated by farmland and so probably going to that park you know probably set out a bunch of cameras try and get some occupancy of boars in the area maybe go in like what I was saying with the, the thermal imaging drone, just kind of get figured out what you even have in the area. Um, yeah, probably try and do some studies like that for a while just to see, maybe have some cameras and stuff around the park, see what their movement pathways are, like where are they going, when are they coming out to feed, that kind of thing. Um, I think with any big science wildlife project is you have to do community outreach. And, you know, if the people in that area aren't, you know, are not on your side with that, you know, you got to kind of talk to them and explain your merits because I think, you know, with people as hunters, like, you know, we understand or, or wildlife managers, like we understand the end goal of what we're trying to do, but sometimes the public, you know, they just, you know, they hear 20 people coming in to shoot a pig, you know, and they, it's scary and it sounds like it's really stressful. And so I think you'd have to, one of your main things is to do proper outreach to explain the benefits and what you're going to do and that kind of thing, or else I don't even know if it would get off the ground if you didn't have, you know, everybody on the same side. So I think that's what I would do starting out is try and yeah, if anything, start with outreach and then do some occupancy and kind of monitoring, see what's there for population initially before you go in, maybe collar some pigs would be pretty good as I, I think as well have some Judas pigs. Those are pretty effective. Call there some males that'll move around to the different females in the sounders kind of monitored in that way. I've seen studies done down in the U S um, mm -hmm. where they put GPS units on hunters and they have GPS units on wild turkeys. And oh. some of the research that's done is they look to see what the responses are of of the turkeys to the hunters being in the forest. So I, I could see this being a very transferable question to a research project yeah. like this is, is how are the pigs responding to these hunters being out there and maybe how that response changes over time. Cause Frederick was, yeah. you know, clearly saying like their pigs have been hunted for m millennia and it's like, no self-respecting wild boar is going to go in a, in a, uh, in a, in a cage like they do down in Texas on, on, uh, on drove. So 
Yeah. That would be that would be kind of a cool yeah. question it would to be. filter in there. Yeah, I think GPS yeah, colors on. Sorry, I think GPS mm-hmm. collars on hunters no, would be a little traumatic. You mean you're out hunting and you get <laughs> darted or netted, and then you yeah, wake that would up be the hardest part is actually like, getting, oh, what the getting hell? darted. Yeah, bait them into a trap. If I can go full redneck here for a minute and and sort of visualize this oh, yeah. hunt, first thing we would do is try not Frederick over there to the hunt. And then we'd get Matt and his his uh, Alberta cronies to surround a large woodland, possibly a, a a large landowner, one large landowner, or an island, a park. And because we don't have dogs mm-hmm. and beaters here, what we'd have to do is advertise free Beyond Meat burgers and and ask all the anti hunters to bring their bags of hair over and go in and sprinkle them in the woods. And while they're doing that, they would chase the boars. They'd become our our beaters, move them out to the edge, and then we can have the, the shoot outside. And the and the Beyond Meat burger, burgers will be gone. We can put the pigs right on the grill right there and have the big old meat fest. This is not the first time you've thought about this, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lee, Lee and I, I have personally liked the idea of going over and learning some of these these skills and traditions and knowledge yeah. and a bit of cross training and stuff to to have a pilot project <laughs> executed on Canadian soil. Um, yeah i i really like your your point of saying yeah have the gps on the hunter and on pigs that are collared because like a lot of the well the pigs that i've experienced it's you know half the time they stay where they are and they don't move because you don't see them and so it's like how many times have you just walked right by a pig and that's like that story that ryan said happened to me was i was walking around in the bush doing work and i was walking around in an area for around like 30 minutes with three other people and we were talking being loud crashing around the bush we were looking for a collar that had fallen off a pig and the battery was shot and so we're looking around you know like sweeping not being quiet there for at least 30 minutes and then I'm walking and all of a sudden I just like looked up and straight ahead of me was this big boar just like sitting underneath like a scrubby tree and like as soon as we locked eyes it just straight ran at me and it's probably when I saw it was like 20 feet away. And when it got within 10 feet of me, I, I'm not gonna lie, I screamed. <laughs> and as soon as I screamed, it just veered off in the bush. But it had been there for 30 minutes, just sitting there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so uh-huh. that's, that's what yeah, Lee does. I've been just hanging Lee, out and like Lee screams. Yeah. <laughs> just screams. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I like don't even know if I could reproduce that sound if I tried. It was terrible. But. Uh-huh. <laughs> Le- Lee yeah, could probably so, mimic it. You probably oh. Yeah, it sounded exactly. <clears throat> I know. And it was a big pig. Like, we had shot one before, and it was 250 pounds, and this pig was, like, twice the size of that one. And, like, it was big. And so I don't know if it was – it seemed like it was pretty intent on me, and I probably threatened it for sure. But the fact that it sat there – and, like, I've, I, I would like to think I'm a pretty observant person, but I didn't see it that whole time. So that's another big issue with all these hunts is, you know, they like to just – hunker down and you can't see them so frederick how far would your beaters be spaced apart yeah that depends um a bit on how many dogs you have if you've got enough dogs you need five five dog handlers with 25 dogs you know and 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 they walk around the thickets and and send their dogs in that's enough if you don't have a lot of dogs then i'd say gaps of 20 20 yeah, around 20 meters between beaters is, 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 is makes sense. Um, so good dogs are really the core 
uh, of, of mm. beating work because it means you need a lot, a lot less beaters and you're still much more effective because um, exactly as mentioned before, bow hunker down, especially if the hunting pressure increases, the hunting pressure on the driven shoots increases or with driving them increases. Uh, they learn that if they stay down and don't run, they survive. And if they run, they die. So um, absolutely mm -hmm. good dogs and a lot of good dogs are much more effective than a lot of beaters. Hmm. Okay. That's good to know. I'll tell you a quick little anecdote. This is from 45 years ago when wild boars were just introduced to the bottomlands of Mississippi. The local rednecks learned very quickly they were edible and how to hunt them. And they would take leather chaps and a horse and go ride through chest-high cockleburrs, which was the, the safe place for boars to be. They were unhuntable in there, this dense, dense underbrush. And they would find these boars, and when they would take off, the horses were quarter horse. They knew to chase the boar. They would run alongside these things and shoot them with shotguns with buckshot on a, at a full gallop. And these are the these are the machos, macho guys I think I've ever seen. And they loved it. And the horses seemed to like it as well, uh, which surprised me. The horses were really agitated. They were like bird dogs almost. There's an old saying you can shoot up any horse one time. But these horses seemed to they're either deaf or they didn't mind shotguns going off from their back. You know, I, Western I, cowboy I've, shit there. That was well. I've I've seen yeah. I've seen Lee hunt porcupines in a very similar way, and uh, it's Western for sure. Prick meets prick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you were probably, when are you going to get to use that one? I, I, I can't. <laughs> um. Hey everybody, this has been a really cool conversation. Um, is there, just kind of we'll go around, is there any kind of, in the spirit of what we've been talking about here, is there any kind of like concluding uh, thoughts or something that you want to add to this from the perspective of our wild pig populations that are expanding month after month here in Canada? Um, Lee? I would like to say, to all the hunters out there and all the conservationists that this is an unfolding issue with a lot of uncertainties and please please don't anchor down on one philosophy that old saying to the owner of a new hammer the whole world looks like a nail this we have to be adaptive we have to be responsive we have to learn from people in europe and, and other places and we have to feel our way along and find the best fit for how we approach the wild pig problem and how we recast it as a wild pig opportunity i think they are here to stay i've come to that conclusion and we've got to make the best of it. Okay, thanks, Matt. Um, slight, slightly different. I would like to be able to believe that wild pigs can be managed and in places that they are here to stay, I would, I would say that we need to be able to mitigate the negative factors. We need to be able to actively manage them. Uh, according to what the risk is. And in places where we have an establishing population that the regional in scope and we have the capacity, then I would like to uh, be quite firm in terms of what our goal is in terms of eradication, especially here in Alberta. That being said, if, if things uh, are not successful, we have established long-term populations of wild boar, then we can look at options in terms of how to manage them how to derive the most utility out of them and how to enjoy them. No, good. Thanks for that. Mackenzie. Yeah. Um, 
as a wildlife biologist right now, I kind of agree with Matt. Like I would love for us to be able to manage and eradicate them in some areas. I just have so many concerns with all these native species, you know, species at risk. Like I've seen the, how they can do a lot of damage. They can till up a lot of native grasslands or just any sort of area, eat, eat all the ground nesting birds or anything they can get their mouths on. And Ryan told me a story about how he went to Texas and he said it was really spooky he was walking around there and it was dead silent like there's no birds and so and that kind of just you know it does scare me a bit mm -hmm. and so i would love if we could try you know try our hardest to get rid of them at the moment and like matt said if we if we cannot then i would be very open to trying to come up with some hunting solutions with hunters and managers and you know the public and but first off i would love if we could you know try our hardest to get rid of them um I know like just going around one of my jobs with Ryan was to go around to different farmyards and stuff and ask people, you know, are you having trouble with wild boar? Like, do you want to tell me your story? And so you'd hear lots of different stories from people and people were having trouble. They wouldn't plant corn anymore because the pigs ate all the corn that was supposed to go to their livestock or they're having trouble in the winter. The pigs were coming up on their bales for, of hay. And once the pigs went to the bathroom on that hay, they, the cows wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole. And so that's the loss, a big loss of livelihood. And another, like probably one of the craziest stories somebody told me was um, a pig came into their yard, just a lone pig on its own. And it took after their German shepherd and it got it pinned underneath their deck and it, it managed to gut their German shepherd open. That was about a hundred pound dog and it killed their dog in front of their kids and stuff. And so it's like stuff like that. It's, you know, it's, it's easier for people that are in the cities and stuff. And like, we're not getting directly, I'm not directly impacted by having wild pigs, but these farmers and the people living in the rural areas are the ones that are getting impacted. So I think for them, we got to try and get rid of them first off is my opinion anyway. <laughs> okay. Appreciate that. Uh, Frederick, any uh, final thoughts, advice to impart <laughs> in this conversation? <laughs> I'm 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 a sportsman at heart. I'm a I'm a wild boar fanatic at heart. Um, see him as an asset, um, but do come after your responsibilities. Um, make sure you can shoot them. Enjoy shooting them, but make sure you support your farming community. Make sure you 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 support everyone involved, so you don't have any conflict. And and it's a win-win for everyone. No good good advice. Curtis, anything uh, in your just, mind listen to all this? I just got to say, and you can attest to this, I make a mean pulled pork on yeah. barbecue. <laughs> 12 to 16 hours, slow cooked over the charcoal. Just saying, you could get a lot of that just, out of a wild boar. So. Yeah. Just yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. they are very tasty. <laughs> yeah. See, th this whole conversation reminds me of a problem that we have on, I don't know if it's on the east coast of Canada, I know it is on the west coast of a species of crab that has been introduced. Mm. It's the, it's called the green crab. I think they're invasive and, you know, they're displacing, you know, other parts of the marine ecosystem. So they're looking at a harvesting type solution to try to get the control of these green crabs somebody has figured out how to make scotch oh i crab. saw that I, that's <laughs> yeah <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah scotch yeah uh, i don't know 
Yeah. Yeah, they so boil these crabs and then make a scotch out of the boiled crab juice. And oh it's God. essence. I think so. it's actually called essence of crab. I think my mother in law has a place making that stuff. Christmas is going to be awkward if she listens to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, Christmas 2023, because this is January. Yeah, January there we go. So yeah. He's, he's just for himself a year. 12 months. He's in the clear. He's good. Oh, um, Frederick, thanks, next, everybody, next time you're um, in... for this great conversation. Yeah, Frederick, next time you're in Scotland shooting red stags, you can uh, bring up a bottle of Canadian essence of crab scotch. I'm sure they'll appreciate it. I'd, I'd love it, depending on, on how many bottles of single malt we had before. Would they? Yeah. <laughs> the testers might actually enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> We could have oak barrel aged wild boar, twelve oh year old, rye. <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, thanks for everybody for making making the time. Sorry we uh, missed you in this episode, Ryan. Uh, maybe we'll catch up with you on a future episode this year, and you can um, tell us your thoughts on this conversation and maybe some of the horrors <laughs> and what you heard. Um, I, his ears are probably burning. Uh, thanks again, everybody. Curtis, take it away. Right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. I would suspect after listening to this episode, they're probably going to come out with the Wild Boar Edition Tacoma with thermal imaging and <laughs> night radar and all sorts of, of fancy probably have a thermal drone in there as well to a game cooler in the back exactly so we'll we'll speak to them about making that a, a priority but uh yeah as always we're very grateful for the folks down at alpine to continue support us here at the hunter conservationist also as many of you know we have a patron page with two exclusive podcasts now uh, by the time this comes out, I think you should have another one of your new Hunting Diaries podcasts out. There's one you so betcha. far. So you can track that down at patreon.com slash thehunterconservationist. There is 30 podcasts of The Hunters Underground, which I'm like thinking the other day, I was like, oh, we must have at least seven or eight or nine now. And I'm like, holy shit, we got 30 of them. So there's 30 and then there's a, a couple more of the, the new ones. So there's quite a bit of content for you to catch up on if you folks are not already subscribed to that. It's five bucks a month. That five bucks helps us bring you content of responsible hunting and science and conservation across Canada. So we appreciate our patron members as well. Thank you. And uh, hey, everybody, I'll see you in the next episode.